Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 49, Kashta, King of Kush. Previously on The Fan of History, Egypt is weak and divided. Israel has a golden age. The Assyrian Empire is falling apart. Dan, what can we what can we glean from all this terrible and positive information? Seems like there's so many ups and downs. Yeah, we're in the 750s BC now, and a lot of great things are coming in the next few episodes. So much is going to happen. Uh, but the king of the week is Sarduri II, the king of Urartu. Urartu mm-hmm. is the strongest state in the Near East. And I don't even know if Assyria is a close second anymore. Ne- oh. The Neo-Assyrian Empire is in a super bad shape. Incredible. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Saduri II is uh, the seventh king of Urartu. Urartu is roughly proto-Armenia, so it's in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has one of its strongest king, kings ever, and Assyria has its weakest king ever. The Assyrian royal army is what keeps the, uh, the Assyrian empire together, and it's led by Shamshi Ilu, the Tutano, the field marshal. Right. The troops are still in good shape. On the field of battle, Assyria will beat anyone, including Urartu, if they can get their act together and bring the army somewhere. But Urartu is hiding behind fortresses and mountains, and they are assembling allies, particularly in Syria, 
to take on Assyria once and for all and take out the empire. It's been running for 160 years. Mm -hmm. If you ask Urartu, the Assyrian (laughs) Empire should come to an end very soon. Right. Okay. So In, what's uh, uh, yeah. oh sorry <laughs> I was go, gonna say go ahead. <laughs> so what uh, what makes him so confident that this is going to come to an end so soon? Well, the empire is collapsing under its own weight, and in 759 BC, Assyria has a re- revolt again. Oh, great! Another um, <laughs> yes, and this uh, revolt is only stopped because of another plague <laughs> that sweeps the land. Wow! Did they describe this one any more detail in the last, or did they just say? I think it's the same uh, civil war that started in the last episode and still goes on, but we don't have any details. Hmm. And the king, Ashurdan III of Assyria, he is uh, doing nothing. We don't know what he's doing, but he I don't think he has much power. He's controlled by nobles, and the nobles are struggling with each other for power over their provinces. Sure. And so Assyria is in chaos pretty much to, until 755 BC. Uh, and we don't really know what happens to Assyria in 758 to 756. But the Urartians, they are on a roll, everything is going good. And they believe that now with help, they could take out the empire, perhaps in the 740s. So they're building their power structures and they want the empire gone because if the Assyrians were not immediately to the south of Urartu, then Urartu could really reach its potential without having to fear the the top-notch Assyrian army every day. Hmm. So in 7... Overall, I have very little news from 758 to 756. But in 757, there is a change in Athens. The office of Archon. Is that how you say it in English? Office of... The Archon. Yeah, Archons. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, how I would is, say it. Yes, this is the ruler, the way Athens is ruled at this time. And there's a change to that office in 757 BC. It's reduced to 10 years. Mm-hmm from some, something bigger than 10 years. <laughs> and the first one to get this new Archon office is a guy called Kerops. Kerops? Yes. And there is some sort of crisis in Attica. Attica is the area where Athens is. And up to this point, you have Attic pottery reaching other areas of Greece. But okay. now there is a sharp archaeological decline of Attic pottery. And you also find very few oriental objects in Attica. And the, the influence of Attica seems to diminish in the 750s BC. And Athens is clearly falling behind the other city-states. Because Greece is growing. Greece is getting more powerful, but not Athens. And Athens wasn't very powerful to begin with after the Bronze Age collapse. It did survive, but it was reduced to almost nothing. So uh, bad, bad times for Athens too. That is so much, so much bad to go around in these, in these times. Yeah, but there are other places where things are better, but we'll get to them. But first, we have to talk about 
Ashurdan III again because in 755 BC this really bad king of Syria uh, dies. And uh, you, you would think that when a, a weak, uh, inefficient ruler dies, that's good news. But um, this makes everything a lot worse. Oh, no. So in 755 BC, Ashur-Nirari V takes up residence in the throne room in Kala. And it is possible that his power doesn't extend outside the palace at all. But he is pretty much a prisoner in the palace. And not allowed to make any decisions at all. Because he is even weaker than Ashurdan <laughs> III. Wow. It is even it is also unclear if he's the son or the brother of the late king, Ashurdan III. It has now been 27 years since Adad Nirari III died. So it is possible that Ashur Nirari V is a younger son of the last decent king of Assyria, Adad Nirari III. But now the Neo-Syrian Empire is totally controlled by nobles. And among them, of course, Shamshi Ilu being the most powerful. But Shamshi Ilu is also getting old now. He's been around in our story for 50 years, taking more and more power every year. Uh, there is a battle in 754 BC between Urartu and Assyria. Okay. At least, if, at least if you ask Sarduri II of Urartu. <laughs> okay. Because he mentions a victory against Assyria. And the Assyrians, they don't mention anything at all. They say, oh, nothing happened this year. <laughs> but Saduri says that he had a brush with the army of Ashunirari V in the district of Armi or Urmi. And this is possibly in Shubria, which is a border region. Okay. Uh, there is a city called Inkiria that was uh, captured by the Rortians. And this seems like, wow, the Russians are capturing a city from the Assyrians. <laughs> but these places are, I, I haven't been able to find them. I don't know where this is. It seems to be a, a border area, but I have no idea where this is. So if anyone knows, let me know. <laughs> so it's once Pointed again, like, Russian names. Right. Point it out on a map for us. <laughs> Please do. But there's this great pincer movement going uh into the west and possibly even into the east around Assyria from the north, from Urartu. So when the Urartians finally decide to destroy the empire, they can attack from three directions into the Assyrian heartland. So Assyria is, from what it looks like here, this should be the end of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. In the 740s, possibly. Hmm. Wow, okay. Uh, in 754 BC, Kala, the Assyrian capital, gets a new governor. We don't really know which year this happened, but this is my educated guess. It's a guy called Pulu. So he is a governor of the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So he's possibly in a very good position to control the king or oppress the king. Uh, he might also be the younger brother of the king. At least he will claim that he is. But we haven't really seen any kingly brothers do important stuff in the Neo-Syrian Empire before. 
Right. Like they, I, I couldn't. I was just trying to think. I was like, I don't remember any kind of brother situation happening here. It's actually my uh, a big question: What happened to the earlier Assyrian king brothers? Because an Assyrian king could have hundreds of children, and we never get a mention of someone being the brother of the king <laughs> right. until now. We will get brothers or kings later, but uh, I can't remember anyone before this. Uh, but this guy becomes the governor of Kala, Pulu, governor of Kala. Remember that. In okay. 754 BC, a guy called Polydorus becomes one of the kings of Sparta. This is a very contested date. He could become the king in 741 BC also. But we'll put him here in 754 BC. And he's a member of the Agia dynasty. They have two kings in Sparta. So there are two dynasties going around at the same time. Okay. That's uh, the updates from uh, the uh, Near East. But now we have to go to Egypt. Egypt, oh boy. And from, for once, we'll not try to avoid Egypt. Yeah, because we'll we from, from the heights of power to... Wow. <laughs> to something we'd rather not talk about. Yes. It's been like that for 100 years now. <laughs> but um, the situation in Egypt is that there are several pharaohs, at least four independent rulers in Egypt. the uh, V is the 22nd dynasty pharaoh He's of Libyan descent. He's probably ruling from Tanis in the north, in the delta, close to the Mediterranean. But his power over Egypt is <laughs> contested. So Egypt has been dirtling around in splendid isolation since the Sea Peoples, since the fall of the New Kingdom. But the Dark Ages are now over and Egypt has fallen behind the rest of the world. And soon Egypt will... Uh, be invaded from all directions. Well, but now, <laughs> rich, fertile land, right for the picking. There, yes. The um, and the the southerners that will invade Egypt, they will make an effort to become the Egyptians. But the northerners that will invade Egypt, they have only one god, and that god is not an Egyptian. Dun, but dun, now. Dun. We will focus on the southerners, because um, to the south of Egypt is a land called Kush, or Nubia. Mm -hmm. And it's been around forever. The Egyptians mention uh, Kush already in the Old Kingdom. That's almost 2,000 years before this. But during the New Kingdom, the Egyptians conquered Kush and built their temples in Kush. But when the, new temp when the new kingdom fell, Kush became independent, but these um, monuments, the Temple of Amun, etc., they were still there. Um, it is quite unclear what happened in Kush at this time, and I will go with the Cambridge Ancient History version. That's okay. what I do all the time. Cambridge Ancient History is my Bible for ancient history. 
so we have this kingdom. It is probable that the kingdom wasn't united after the fall of the new kingdom. So Kush was divided. But when Kush now enters our story, it's a unified country. It has its center of power in a place called Napata. Napata. It's between the fourth and the third cataracts of the Nile. So you divide the Nile depending on places where you can't pass with boats. That's a cataract. Right. And reaching the highest numbered cataract was like the, the goal of the new kingdom. <laughs> but between the third and the fourth cataract, you have the capital of Kush now. And Napata is clearly named in the days of the new kingdom. So this is an Egyptian name. It marked the sudden limit of real pharaonic control during the new kingdom. Uh, it may or may not be identified with Gebel Barkal, where temples dedicated to the Theban god Amun were built in the 19th and the 18th dynasties. And this is a debated point among scholars. But uh, we'll, so Napata could be located somewhat differently from Gebel Barkal. And how much the presence of these Egyptian temples influenced the Kushites is a big question. But, um, okay, let's talk about Napata, the capital of Kush. We can't really reconstruct the history of Napata or even of Kush from the late 20th dynasty. There is no archaeological evidence in Napata before 850 BC after the fall of the New Kingdom. So that's a period of 300 years when we don't really know what was going on here. Uh, we know that there was a Kushite attack on Egypt in the 950s. We talked about that on the podcast. But we didn't really know anything about it. And there is really no evidence for a united Kush kingdom. I think I talked about the kingdom of Kush in the, when we did the centennial overview of nations. But there is really no evidence before 850 BC that there is a unified country of Kush. Uh, you often hear that the cult of Amun, Amun is the god of Thebes, the, uh, one of the most important gods in Egypt, and that the, the cult was maintained in Gebel Barkal, in Kush, during all this time. That there were priests, the temple was in operation. But that's uh, probably just a fairy tale. <laughs> but it's 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 also a contested question. But now there is worship of a moon in Napata, so the Kushites are worshiping a moon, and this could be a marketing device. This could be a trick by the Kushites that they are now going to. Uh, extend their influence into Egypt, and to make that possible, they are trying to look as Egyptian as possible. So I'm not sure that they are really influenced by Egypt, sort of convinced of the superiority of Egyptian culture. It could just be a scam or a trick. Uh, so there's uh, much talk about PJ. That's the son. PJ is the son of uh, Kashta. Kashta is now the king of Kush in this period. Okay. And there's a lot of talk in the history books about PJ. I called him Pai as well. There are several names. Pianku. There are several names for this guy. Right. But he, he's generally believed to be a servant of Amun, that he's like super religious for Amun. 
but I will make the case that this is also just a marketing device on his part, that he's trying to appear Egyptian. And uh, his uh, successor, Taharka, will be doing a major temple building campaign, also in the name of Amun. Uh, P uh, refers to Amun all the time in his writings. We have several writings from P. <clears throat> and he says, that, you know that Amun is the god who dispatched us as he sends his army. In a swift reaction to events in Egypt in a later episode, in the 720s BC, uh, BC we'll talk about, we'll spend a whole episode talking about P. But... Uh, so we can find that the kings of Kush being buried in Napata, they don't, when they're buried, when they die, they forget all about Amun. They are buried in the Nubian manner, in the Kush manner. So they, they build pyramids, for example, which nobody has done in Egypt for a long time. <laughs> right. And uh, it seems that when they die, they forget uh, all about Amun. <laughs> and even PJ himself will be buried in a Nubian manner. Wow. There is also a big question about what PJ did and what his father Kasha did. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And uh, so if we look at the life of Kashta, we don't have exact years and stuff. He's a very shadowy figure compared to his son. But this is the episode of Kashta, King of Kush. So now we'll have to think <laughs> about Kashta. It seems to be that rule uh, or the um, succession in Kush is based on brotherhood. So you give the throne, not to your son when you die, but to your brother. Okay. Which seems weird because what happens... <laughs> When you're out of brothers, then it's the son of the last <laughs> remaining brother. Uh, so Kasha had an older brother called Alara, who could be the first king of unified Kush. And 
already Alara did something involving Egypt and Kashta Kashta is also dealing with Egypt somehow and in some manner Kushite influence spreads into Egypt and it's very unclear when but the, uh, Thebes is the biggest city of the south of Egypt of upper Egypt and this city is super ready to accept PJ when he finally invades. So the Thebans seem to already consider PJ their king. So I, I'm going to make the case that I think that Kashta already took control of southern Egypt. Okay. In a very subtle manner that... So that Thebes and the surrounding area of southern Egypt is already almost a vassal kingdom to Kush. We know that there was a lot of cultural contact, there was trading, and there is a religious office in Thebes that the Kushite seems to be taking over. And one thing you hear about Kashta is that he actually invaded Egypt. But did he? <laughs> it's, it's hard to tell. Was it an invasion, or where was he let in? Yeah, maybe it was just a great political campaign. Right. We know that Kashta is writing his name in Katushis. That is a typical sign of the uh, of an Egyptian pharaoh. He he is called. He may have assumed the Egyptian royal title, King of Upper and Lower Egypt, but he obviously had no influence in the north yet. <laughs> Right. Lower Egypt, the north, upper Egypt, the south, because all they think about is the Nile. Right. There is no solid evidence that this is an invasion, that Kashta actually invaded and conquered Thebes, but it could still have happened. There is a fragmentary stele from Aswan bearing Kashta's name, and that's the common evidence to prove that he invaded Egypt. But it could be a later, it could have been constructed several years later. Hmm. So, yeah, it's all very rough here, very, very <laughs> way. Uh, you can also read about Kashta that he made his daughter the divine adoratrice of a moon. That's the great religious office in Thebes. The divine adoratrice of a moon. So the divine chick that worships a moon, right. <laughs> pretty much. And that's an important position in Thebes. That's uh, really important. But uh, maybe Kasha did, or maybe not. Or maybe it was Pia who put his sister there. But we will find the daughter of Kasha as the divine adoratrice. But in 752 BC, Kasha, the king of Kush, dies. And whatever he did not do, that people says he does, <laughs> is, <laughs> is now done by his son, Pie. Okay. So in 752 BC, Pie becomes the king of Kush. And you can sometimes hear the questions, uh, maybe we talked about this, were the Egyptians black? Mm -hmm. The Egyptians were obviously Africans, right. but were they black? I... Have any thoughts? Oh, I was going to say, I... Well, looking at Egyptians today, I'm going to say no. Yeah, and you're probably correct. 
uh, and the way one of the evidence, one of the pieces of evidence for this, mm-hmm. is that when the Egyptians depict Pie, he is utterly black. This guy is from Kush. Ah. He's black. Right. And there's a great difference in how they portray him. When they do their paintings and whatnot. Yes, and this guy is going to appear on paintings in Egypt. Right. Because he's going to do stuff. <laughs> he is going to bring order to Egypt finally. Hot damn. Uh, it may have been in 747 that he became the king. That's the uncertainty of the dates. Uh, Pia is normally counted as the first pharaoh of the 25th dynasty. <laughs> and to really understand the confusion in Egypt, the 24th dynasty hasn't even started yet. What? <laughs> so we have the 22nd and the 23rd dynasties, and then we have a lot of guys holding supreme power in Egypt, but they don't really call themselves pharaohs. We have two pharaohs of the 22nd and 23rd dynasty. We might have two of the 23rd dynasty at this point, but it's just a mess. <laughs> but Pia will spend most of his time in Kush dealing with Kush. But when he goes north into Egypt, he will make quite an impression. And we have a full record of what he did in Egypt in 725 BC. So that's why we'll spend the whole episode talking about Pia going into Egypt. Uh, Manetho was the Hellenistic historian that created the dynasty system of Egyptian history. Okay. And he actually started the 25th dynasty with Chewbacca in 713 BC. Chewbacca? Yeah, Chewbacca. We'll talk more about him. Okay. But PA is very hard to ignore. And uh, we'll talk about PJ's actions in the narrative and hope that he can restore order to Egypt then. So, let's leave Egypt and move to Israel. Israel was having a great time, but in 753 BC, Jeroboam II of Israel dies. Mm. And uh, his rule was truly this golden age, and we have archaeological evidence for this. There are large, well-built private houses in Tirsa, that was the old capital of Israel, And there seems to be a very wealthy, privileged class in Israel and much trading going on pretty pretty far abroad. It's been 100 years since the Battle of Karkar in 753 BC, but much of Israel's wealth comes from submitting to the Assyrian Empire when the Assyrian Empire was strong. So after that initial resistance at the Battle of Karkar, which could be questioned if Israel was even there, but now Israel has gone, become extremely powerful in its local area because they always submit to the Assyrians when they come around, so they don't get destroyed or massacred. Probably wise. And then his son picks up the crown. It's Zechariah who becomes the king of Israel in 753 BC. He's the fifth king of Jehu's line. So uh, the line has been going on for five kings, and that's usually a sign of a stable dynasty. Right. But Zechariah only rules for six months. Well, that was quick. <laughs> yes, and that end, there ends the dynasty of Jehu. <laughs> the Jehu's line is snuffed out by a guy called Shalom. In 752 BC, Shalom becomes the king of Israel. This guy seems to have been a captain in the army of King Zechariah. 
According to the Old Testament, he conspired against Zechariah and smote him before the people. So he killed him right there in front of everybody? Yep. And um, uh, this was a brutal coup then, and Shalom becomes the king of Israel. So now Shalom has this challenge. He has to take over Israel and rule it and make a new dynasty and sort of make the people love him. So will he reign for a long time? Uh, what's this guy like? What are right. his hobbies? What are his visions for Israel? We don't know. Because in 752 BC, still the same year, okay. Menahem becomes the king of Israel. <laughs> I think this is pronounced Menachem. Menachem? Really. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to pronounce it Menachem. He is another officer in Zechariah's army. And when Shalem seizes power, Menachem thinks, oh, I could do that. So he marches his army from Tirsa to Samaria and lays siege to the capital city. And uh, this goes great because Shalem is killed and his, his reign ends after one month. One month? <laughs> wow. Yeah, one month. Shalem was the king of Israel. And Menachem, he is really scared now because now he is the king of Israel and he just saw what happened to the last guy and he has no, uh, no right to rule Israel except his soldiers. And immediately the city of Tipsa rebels against Menachem. So he decides to deal with this pretty roughly. So instead of waiting for another captain of the army to march on Samaria, Menachem marches on the rebellious city of Tipsa. Yeah. And he destroys it in Assyrian fashion. All the inhabitants of Tipsa are killed. Right. And he very famously tears open the pregnant women. Wow. And uh, kills the uh, unborn babies because of the rebellion. That's brutal. <laughs> this is very much the, the end of the golden age of Israel, this uh, massacre in Tipsa. Israel is still powerful, but the golden age is now a memory. And we have to ask ourselves if this is just biblical slander. We haven't seen... We, we saw Jehu killing a lot of people in mm -hmm. Israel, but this kind of brutal violence is... It's been a while since we saw that. And this city of Tipsa is like... Uh, was that really very important? Uh, I haven't seen much mentions of it. So it could just be the successors of Menachem trying to uh, tell bad stories about him. Right. But we know then that Menachem is a, a rough, brutal ruler and he will keep Israel together with violence. But he will run into someone who is more brutal than him. Oh, no. <laughs> who is a lot more scary than him. That will um, teach him the time of day. <laughs> so, uh, after pregnant women getting ripped open, we... We'll do something lighter. We'll have a sports report. All oh, right, we yeah. That let's in talk the about, exactly. Let's talk about sports. This is this is bad. <laughs>
<laughs> so we have a couple of Olympics to talk about. We'll talk about all the Olympics of the 760s and the 750s BC. So in 768 BC, there is an Olympic Games. All right. Yes, and we still have only one event. It's that stadium race. They run, Heck and yeah. then it's over. The whole game <laughs> lasts 45 seconds with a day of ceremonies <laughs> around it. <laughs> but the race is won in 768 BC by Androcles of Messenia. Okay. Uh, that, yeah, Messenia is a Dorian nation to the extreme southwest. And Messenia is a powerful Dorian nation. And in the year 764 BC, the fourth Olympic Games is won by Polycarus of Poly Messenia. Polycarus. Yes. Polycarus of Messenia. And this guy will reappear in our story. So repeat three times Polycarus. 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 Yes, the Olympic victor from Messenia, Polycarus. In 760 BC, Elis managed to win the Olympic Games. Aeschines, Aekines of Elis wins. Elis is this local town very close to Olympia. Mm. And they are the city-state that controlled the Olympic Games. He didn't have to so walk as far. It's a home team victory. <laughs> he wasn't as tired from all the walking. No. And mm -hmm. Messenia doesn't win here for three times in a row. Then, but So the Messenians are disappointed. But uh, the uh, the, uh, expe the career expectancy of the Olympic uh, winners are very short. So Polycarus <laughs> right. probably was too old at this point, four years later, to compete. In 756 BC, a guy called Oedbatas of Dime wins the Olympic Games. And Dime was an ancient Greek city in Achaea to the east. Okay. It was the westernmost city of the Achaia, the area of the Achaeans. And the first resident of this city of note was this guy, Oebotas, who was the first Achaean to win the Olympic Games. He, um, he received no honors because the Achaeans didn't care for the Olympic Games yet. And he wow. cursed his town because they didn't honor him. <laughs> That's a, that's a heck of a thing. He knew going in that they didn't care about it. He thought they would care with this this victory, but the Achaeans just didn't care yet. And that's why we have so many Dorians winning the Olympic Games. In uh, 752 BC, we have a change. Something new happens to the Olympic Games. This is the introduction of the crown of leaves. Oh, okay. This classic symbol for a victor. Is it, it is introdu introduced in 752 BC. Is it laurels? Yeah, yeah, that's the name. Laurels. Crown, crown of laurels, what do you say? Yeah. Yeah, and it's given to Diocles of Messenia. So the Messenians are back. Winning uh, the Olympic Games again. Man. So you they could just, say that the scene. Yeah. Yes, they, they, they are tearing up this competition. But after 730 BC, yep. there will never be a victor from Messenia again, <gasps> or very few at least. 
And that's because of the first Mycenaean War, which we will also spend the whole episode discussing. Because okay. there are some other Dorians that will kick Messenius behind <laughs> very hard. And probably destroy all their gyms so they can't train for the Olympics. Oh yeah, they have no tracks, they have no indoor gyms, no jacuzzis. Yeah, so Messenia will stop winning the Olympics, but right now they are dominating the Olympics. And that's all for this episode. All right. Well, what is coming up in our next episode, Dan? It's a great episode. The Greeks will learn to read and write again. Oh, wow. That'll be interesting. It will be, I promise you. I have lots of questions, and we'll find out my questions next time. But please, if you enjoyed it, please go to YouTube, subscribe, like, and share or give us a review on iTunes. We would love to read them, read your words on this show for anything, any kind of review you give us. We'd like to hear it. So we would like you to also visit, if you can, facebook.com slash fanofhistory or thefanofhistory.wordpress.com. If you want to follow me, I'm at Cerulean Says Hi. But if you want to follow Dan, he is at Dan Horning on Twitter. Also, we have a Patreon. Please su consider supporting us. Patreon.com slash fan of history. Yeah, please do. We are looking for $30 from sponsors. So uh, I feel that's not a huge amount of money. But we need that to go into the 7th century BC. Otherwise, we will find another subject in after the destruction of Sennacherib in 701 BC. Yeah, so if you want to keep it, keep this um, history train rolling, patreon.com slash fan of history is the best way of doing that. Yes. So, for this week, I am Brennan. And I'm Dan. And this has been The Fan of History. Oh, yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.